Well, we've got a lot to talk about today, so we'll establish a Fairbank Center record by starting on time. <laughs> <laughs> After I uh, began to study tai Taiwan, uh, the one thing that astounded me was the fact that this small island of 23 million people uh, could have such a complex and consequential uh, domestic political system, and even more important, the impact that that domestic political system has on its external relations. Taiwan, we'd say in English, Taiwan clearly is an island that punches above its weight. And if any of you can think of a Cheng Yu, uh, that could be punching above its weight, uh, that would be very helpful, because I would love to have it. Uh, it, it. It really is amazing how a small island could have such complex politics and such consequential um, external relations. And I think that the nature of the politics uh, was uh, demonstrated in the recent nine-in-one local elections that were held on November 24th. The results of the election were dramatic uh, and for some startling, particularly uh, some in the DPP leadership. Uh, the ruling Democratic Progressive Party, which had swept the uh, 2014 local elections, was badly defeated in these local elections. Of the 22 cities and counties at the top, uh, the KMT, or the Guomindang control, uh, was increased from six in 2014 to 15 this year. Uh, the DPP went from the control of 13 to six. And the only uh, other office that was left uh, was the mayor of the capital, Taipei, and he's an independent. So it, it was a, a genuine reversal. And also important uh, were the referenda uh, that were held at the same time of the election. Uh, there were 10 questions, uh, and it was a somewhat different electorate because although uh, you had to be 20 to vote in the uh, individual, to vote in the political office elections, uh, you could vote in the referenda at the age of 18. So the referenda might reflect um, another uh, current of thought or another attitude uh, among the Taiwan population, particularly the uh, younger voters. The startling thing for many about the, the referenda was that ta Taiwan, which was considered to be one of the more liberal uh, entities in Asia, uh, the population de defeated uh, a, a referenda question on same-sex marriage. They defeated a referenda question on sex education uh, in the um, schools. And 
for an island where identity was becoming uh, more and more important, uh, the electorate also uh, voted down a proposal to change the Olympic name of ta Taiwan uh, from uh, ch Chinese Taipei to uh, simply ta Taiwan. So there are lots of currents, uh, lots of things to look at. And those are the facts. Uh, the next issue is the issue that all of us uh, have to address, and that is the so what question. Uh, what, what did the elections mean? Uh, and it seems to me that there are three areas where the uh, elections uh, may be very consequential. The first area is in the party system of the island. Uh, what the impact on dom domestic politics has been uh, or, or will be is a central question. And it seems to me that there are uh, a number of questions or a number of issues that you can raise. In the first place, the broadest issue is what the impact of the election will be uh, on the party system in ta Taiwan. And, and here there are issues such as the stability of the two-party system, uh, shifts in the relative strengths of each party, the possible evolution of party platforms, the emergence of a third party, or the impact of changes in the nature of the electorate, that is the rising uh, youth vote, uh, what all of that may be uh, for ta Taiwan's politics. Uh, it, it was clearly a a showcase for ta Taiwan dem democracy. Uh, the question is how Taiwan democracy might change uh, or what indications of change for Taiwan's dem democracy might be in these votes. The second issue, of course, is the impact of the election on relations with the mainland, both from the perspective of possible changes in party policies on Taiwan, but also uh, the impact of the election on PRC policy towards Taiwan. So it, 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 it has the potential to change both both uh, aspects of relations with the mainland, both uh, how Taiwan approaches the mainland and also how the mainland approaches ta Taiwan. The final issue is the relationship with the United States. Uh, Tsai Ing-wen has worked very hard to align Taiwan's policies uh, with the United States. Uh, there's now some concern that t Taiwan finds itself in the middle uh, of an emerging um, increase in tensions uh, between the United States and China. And the question is uh, whether her uh, affinity with the United States or her close policy towards the United States might have affected the electorate and might be changed. So we're obviously not going to be able to answer all of these questions today. I suggest them as possible um, questions uh, that you can raise or issues that you can raise. 
but we're we're very fortunate uh, to have uh, three speakers today who uh, are sure to supply uh, much food for thought and much food for discussion. Uh, we have uh, Mingxiu He, uh, who is in the Department of Sociology uh, at National T Taiwan University. Uh, Jiangling Huang, uh, who's in political science uh, at uh, National Taiwan University, both of whom are this year visiting at the Harvard Yenjing Institute. And we have Jin um, uh, Kai, uh, a, a graduate student here at Harvard who uh, worked in the campaign in Kaohsiung and can, <laughs> can perhaps tell us something about uh, <laughs> why what happened in Kaohsiung happened. <laughs> Um, so why don't I ask Mingxiu uh, Ming to go first? Uh, maybe Tony, because Tony is there. You want to oh, go first? Okay. Okay. Let me show you. Okay, good. <coughs> well, it's a pleasure to be here, and I thank you all for coming here. Uh, I'm going first because Mingxiu is going to talk. Uh, a lot more than I do, and but I want to show you some slides, and I will touch on uh, three issues, which is sort of my main takes of the election results. The first one is about Taiwanese voters. I think the Taiwanese voters deserved a lot of credits to show the quality of Taiwan's democracy. These are the pictures of this year's election. Um, people are lining up to vote. It's actually unprecedented. Because in Taiwan, we always say that the, the, the voting procedure is so efficient that usually it takes like 10 minutes. You know, you walk in, you seldom need to line up. Uh, just probably line up for one to five minutes and then get your votes and then you vote and then leave. So voting is a very, very easy thing for Taiwanese to do and the Taiwanese get used to that. But this year, because of those uh, referendum cases that people have to vote on, and this is the first time the referendum threshold has been lowered, so that's why there are so many referendum cases. So people take time to vote and then it turns out the Central Election Commission has been under so much fire ever since the voting day, mainly because of these kind of lines. The amazing thing, you know, from my viewpoint, even though I'm not in Taiwan during the election time, but uh, through these newspapers reports and uh, looking at pictures like this, it's all over Taiwan's news. It's either, you know, print media or social media. I, I myself, as a Taiwanese, I must say that I'm a little bit proud because people complain about waiting, but there is no chaos, no disturbance, no nothing during the vote. It's like they just keep waiting, and the average waiting time is about 1.5 hours to two hours, and the people sort of insist on waiting to vote. So that means that they care about that. And uh, while saying these Taiwanese voters deserve a lot of credit to show the quality of democracy, I'm going to make a main point about Taiwanese voters. In general, they, um, Taiwanese voters are negative voters. Negative voters in the sense that they vote against the people they don't like. 
instead of <laughs> more than they vote for people they really prefer. So this is the picture that a lot of us are very familiar with because um, uh, this is the, the 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 map everybody sees um, after the election results shows, and uh, you see the big change between two, 2014 and 2018. However, if you see the previous election, it's almost like the reverse image. So, uh, the way Taiwanese elections are now uh, synchronized uh, in such a way that for every two years, we have a major election. It's, uh, and it's the national election and the local elections um, that are held interchangeably. So, for every two years, you, you know, it's like you, you vote for national election for the president and the national parliament. And then two years later, you vote for the governors of the cities and the mayors, like city and the county mayors and then uh, city and the county council members. And then the next two years, then two years later, you vote for the president and the parliament again. So in a way, it seems that the trend is more and more clear that Taiwan's local election now becomes a midterm election. It becomes a referendum on the ruling party. And uh, this is the headlines of the four major print medias. Uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, us here can read Chinese. If you change Ma Yingzhou to Cai Yingwen, and if you change Lan to Lu, it could be the headlines of the, the print medias of this election. So that just shows you how you know, voters swing against, it seems like, against the ruling party. The second point I want to make is about gender equality. Um, there is a record broken uh, this year, uh, or you can say it's a milestone. Among the 22 city and the county mayors elected, seven of them are female mayors. This is unprecedented too. So that makes the, the percentage of female mayors in Taiwan reach the 30%. And it's also pretty high by Asian standard. And uh, these, all, uh, these seven female mayors are all from conservative KMT. And uh, I guess if they are all from progressive side, the feminists will be even more happier. <laughs> so the feminists uh, now, including myself, I am involved in, I do gender research and I'm involved in Taiwan's feminist movement. And uh, this is really a mixed feeling. However, a milestone is a milestone. So I will still give the credits to these, uh, uh, I think, deserving female politicians and also uh, the conservative party. Actually, female representation in Taiwan has been a neglected phenomenon, even though Taiwan in this field has been the regional leader and an exceptional case. And the trend has been going on for a long time. I'm not going to talk about the details about the national elections, but I want to show you this is the trend of the local elections between, like, you know, 1960s, like late 60s, to um, up until now. And as you can see, it's uh, whether it's uh, the number of the city county council members or the two largest city, Taipei and the Kaohsiung, uh, the percentage of female council members in Taiwan have reached basically around like a 35 to 40%, which by any standard is an impressive record. There, there are a lot of reasons why Taiwan can achieve this level of female representation. One major issue is uh, Taiwan has uh, pretty good institutional design in terms of uh, implementing gender quotas to promote women in politics. So... Uh, 
Another aspect about gender equality um, is uh, the same-sex marriage referendum. And uh, I'm showing the number here because I think some of you might uh, have, have been interested but might not be aware of uh, the, the results. These are the percentage. So the, thir the first three cases have been br briefly mentioned <coughs> by uh, uh, Professor Grosting just now. And uh, the last two uh, uh, referendum have been the first, the first three referendum were proposed by the conservative camp, and the last two uh, referendum were proposed by the uh, LGBT camp. So, um, and as you can see, it's almost like a mirror image of the election results. So, in the sense that uh, if this is a test of Taiwan's uh, conservative versus progressive side or camps in terms of this vote, it's about two to one. In a way, these results surprised, I think, surprised the progressive camp. And uh, the results surprised, definitely surprised the feminist and the LGBT movement sectors. Because before these uh, referendum results, um, be before the results of this referendum, in recent years, all the surveys on Taiwan's same-sex marriage is actually about 50-50. Like half of the people support, half of the people do not support. And uh, there are a lot of things could be said about these uh, results. But one issue that remains now, from now on, is how is the government going to enact the law? Because uh, the constitutional court, uh, about a year and a half before, has ruled that without granting the same-sex couples the same benefits and the rights as heterosexual couples, including marriage freedom, that is unconstitutional. So now the fight, right after this uh, referendum is done, the fight now is about uh, how would be uh, the how how would the government enact the law to comply with the constitutional court ruling a year and a half ago, and also not overturning the results of this referendum. And uh, the government has a deadline that which is uh, by next May. So they actually do not have much time to do that. And and uh, uh, recent you know, topic is about whether they can have a same-sex marriage law, that's a special law, or same-sex, uh, or, you know, civil union pact that wouldn't please the LGBT camp. Then uh, the last point I want to make is about Taiwanese identity, which uh, refers to the uh, referendum on the uh, name that we use in Tokyo Olympics. The first one is the results of the referendum. Uh, 4.76 million voters voted yes that we should use Taiwan as our name in Tokyo Olympic. And uh, but 5.77 million um, voters voted no, that uh, we should just stick with Chinese Taipei. Um, the results of this referendum about using Taiwan, Taiwan as the name didn't pass the, the double threshold. One threshold is that you need to have at least 25% uh, of the eligible voters to vote on the on your side. And then you also have to compare your results. The results have to be compared about whether which side actually you know, has more votes. So 4.76 million didn't uh, cross the threshold of the, that 25%. I have a, a asymmetrical interpretation of the results. I think to a lot of Taiwanese, and I think um, some of you might agree or might not agree, I think the results should be interpreted in such a way that about using the name of Taiwan, yes, probably means yes, but no, 
doesn't necessarily mean no. In the sense that uh, the, those people who vote no have a lot of pragmatic concerns about Taiwan's security, about China's threat, the threat in terms of direct and indirect threat, and also about whether our athletes can really get the chance to compete in Olympics. So they don't want anything complicated that. And that, I think, is in accordance with the, uh, the, 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 the known fact about Taiwan's uh, identity for the past, you know, I would say probably at least 20 to 30 years. That means in terms of identity, the Taiwanese identity increase is very obvious and very significant. But in terms of the solution about the cross-strait relations, Taiwanese has remained very pragmatic. It's like when you do the survey, you, you see the identity change. But when you ask people that whether Taiwan should uh, declare independence immediately or in the future should be independent, should declare unification immediately, in the future should be uh, united with China, or Taiwan should maintain status quo. Up until today, at this million uh, status quo people consist of the absolute majority of those surveyed. So in my opinion, that is, uh, there are two different things. One is about identity, the other is about solution. And uh, uh, I think we should probably be careful in terms of reading the results as an identity issue. And I will stop here. Oops, I would just leave it there. Uh, uh, it's my honor to speak here, and thank you, Steve, for making this possible. I, I actually have four points, about six pages. I, I try to make it quick. Um, uh, let me first, uh, uh, Steve said there has been a dramatic reversal in this e election. So first, let me con contextualize this uh, reversal with a comparison with the uh, last local election four years ago. That was 2014, and uh, Chang Lin just mentioned that it was also a reversal for the ruling party at that time, that was Kuomintang. And with for, for 2014, you were really looking into, you were anticipating in 2016, that's a third region change in Taiwan. And in that time, I think it is easier to explain why the incumbent KMD uh, suffered such a defeat at that time. It was a major second turn, and he has problem with Wang Jinping. And because of the infight, like he's is supposedly really plummeted. And there was also some foreign movement happening just half a year before that. So, you know, it's very damaging for Kuomintang. But this time, uh, it's really a miracle rebirth for Kuomintang because if you look at two years ago, that there were a lot of comments that maybe KMD really had difficulty to, to struggle to fight back, but now you have this miraculous rebirth. And this is the first time that KMD had to compete without its financial resources because after the DPP was in the government, there was a law to freeze this EO Garden Party process. So you, you were looking at the first time that Kuomintang to compete in election without money, but it was much more successful with them. So it's quite strange. And second wonder is that uh, in these two years, we, we actually didn't see much change on the part of the KMD, whether it is a political discourse or a party leadership. The chairman was Wu Deng Yi, the former vice president. And there are some candidates who win the local executive position this time, like Peng, in Penghu, in Yunlin, and Jia City. These are all faces. There, but they win this time, they won this time. So the only change of the KMD made, I think, or can think of is really the Han Guoyu. That it is a person come out of nowhere who successfully invent himself or to, be, to have a second political career and become a 
political superstar really fighting of the pen blue uh, voters. And if the last local election, the focus was a current uh, the surgeon who became type city mayor, who is an independent. And this year, I think we should speak of Huang Yu. Hang Yu would be there, and this is a really big surprise. Actually, he was nominated by Kuomintang because Kuomintang had simply run out of suitable choices there. And in the beginning, Hang Yu wanted to run for the Taipei city mayor. And instead, he was nominated by Kuomintang to run in Kaohsiung, and he won. And he's a very atypical person, and he's arrogant and foxy, and he had a very atypical campaign that I, I think we'll see, we're going to see a lot of talk about that. that. Um, I think there are a few easy, um, I think, and also reasonable ex explanation why the KMD wins such a big victory. The first of all, the voter dissatisfaction with the Chai Ing-wen is much deeper and more widespread than it appears. And because both Kuomintang didn't, and, 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 and Min Jintang didn't anticipate the result of going that way. And secondly, I think that the DPP made a fatal mistake by fielding its candidate to compete against Kerwinter. And Kerwinter, we know, has huge fans, especially on the young people. So you kind of entangleize these people that, that end up to be a punishment for uh, and also the, the 10 referendums that Tony just mentioned, uh, the first time in Taiwan's electoral history, and actually provide a platform for the opposition party and their conservative ally to mount a assault on the DPP. And this is quite ironical because the DPP and their movement ally have been competing for a lower threshold of a referendum for many decades. And this is the first time that uh, citizens uh, uh, signature initiative can make that possible. And, but with that referendum question coming ahead, the DPP really tried to shy away, to shirk away from that. But, you know, it became a, a really painful time. And since my, uh, the second point is uh, the movement party. Since, since I studied social movement and civil society, I want to talk more about how the evolution of movement politics affect the result. Uh, in Chai Ing-wen's presidential election, her platform focus uh, was on domestic reforms, including a number of promises on uh, same-sex marriage, clean energy, labor protection, and indigenous rights. Um, that was quite reasonable because you see you see her campaigning after in the wake of 2014 Sunflower Movement. You see agitated civil society, so she wanted to really attract these votes. However, once taken office, Thai government apparently encountered difficulty in realizing this promise, and the way in which it promoted this reform ended up entangling people on both sides. So let me give you uh, two examples. One example is the, 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 the case of labor standards law reform. Thai originally promised to fully implement two days of in a week system how, uh, to lower the working hours in Taiwan because it's very, very long. Uh, but once in power, the DPP chose a gradualist strategy rather than outright outlawing, outright outlawing work on the sixth day of the week. The 2016 revision adopted a, highly, a higher overtime calculation formula to discourage it. However, labor activists saw Taiwan deviate from, it, from her campaign uh, pledge, and also employers disliked the higher cost for overtime pay. What happened is that the DPP tried to backtrack from the reform. So we have a second revision in early 2018, and that not only removed all the, the incremental design, but also loosened the existing 
restrain on permissible working hours. So in the end, both workers, employers, and the general public were kind of alienated <coughs> by the DBB flip-flops. And the second issue I want to mention is actually also on the ballot question this year is about the energy issues. The pursuit for nuclear-free homeland is another issue where DBB failed to articulate a convincing strategy of res responsible reform. After 2011 Fukushima incident, the anti-nuclear opinions surged in Taiwan, and immediately after the Sunflower Movement, uh, intensified protest forced the KMD government to hold the construction of a forced nuclear power plant, which has been a consistent political controversy for, for the past three decades. And it appeared that the DPP and the KMT finally shared a consensus that we are going to abandon the nuclear energy by 2025. That is the time when the latest, the last one, last operating nuclear operator reached its 40 years permit. Both Tsai Ing-wen and Eric Zhu, Zhu Li-wen, uh, the KMD presidential candidate of 2016, agreed on that issue. But however, after taking the office, the DPP nuclear policy suffered two con consecutive crises of power shortage during the summer peak event in 2000. 15 and 2016. And also in last year, there were two incidents of national uh, electricity blackouts. That, and so the, the, this accident were, although these accidents were related to the grid management rather than insufficient power supply, it provided a father for new for nuclear camp. So you see a vital a visible backlash against the DPP to the extent that many KMD politicians also changed their attitudes, like including Ma Injo and Di Zhong, who is a uh, KMD uh, candidate for Taipei City this year. Um, so the upshot is that uh, the DPP faced the persistent difficulty in dealing with movement politics. It was simultaneously criticized for doing too much and also doing too little. The DPP tried to navigate a pragmatic route unsuccessfully and supposedly on the environmental, LGBT, and labor protection with dissolution. At the sign, the vested interests and the conservative sectors were alarmed and energized, whereas those who were neutral or who were unconcerned of this issue have an have an impression that the, the, the ruling party is really do, doing a bad job by causing, causing these controversies. And that's the second point. The third point I want to mention is the China's sharp power. Um, uh, I think that um, aside from the domestic issues, I think we, we, we cannot ignore external forces that is shaping <coughs> Taiwan's politics at the same time. The law of PRC and how Beijing government intervene in Taiwan's politics is some issue I, I think I want to focus here. And I have a feeling you want to, if you want to choose a word of the year, like Xiao Pao will be probably one of the top candidates. And the term is generally referred to mean the influence campaign launched by foreign authoritarian regime to make use of the vulnerability of the open society in order to achieve some geostrategic goals. And in the wake of Brexit and 2016 presidential election in US, and more recently the surge of right-wing populist party in Europe, the footprints, the fingerprints of Russia was practically everywhere. Although it is very difficult to assess its impacts in each cases. And if sharp power is a legitimate research topic here for social sciences, scientists, and I believe Taiwan is one of the most interesting sites to observe this phenomenon. Ever since the first power turnover in 2000 in Taiwan, that brought the 
pro-independence uh, DPP to power, Beijing knew that a military threat or a hard power was not enough to pull Taiwan into its embrace. And there was an obvious short, shortage of soft power that made PRC more likable or appealing for Taiwanese people. As a result, many efforts have been made to penetrate and influence Taiwan society from within, even before the term sharp power was invented. Uh, particularly after the 2016, when uh, DPP became the ruling party again, there has been a step up effort not only to humiliate the DPP politician, but also an effort to delegitimize the Taiwan's government. On the ground, on the PRC ground, that Tsai Ing-wen refused to accept the so-called 1992 consensus, which claimed Taiwan and the mainland belonged to one China. And externally, we have seen many military threats in, in the area closer to Taiwan, and five of Taiwan's diplomatic allies have been switching side to Beijing. And domestically, Chinese government has sustained a barrage of fake news that spread or exaggerate some simple falsehoods to discredit its policies or its doings. Apparently, many government agencies have the difficulty in spreading out the correct information to the citizens. And earlier this year, a Japan-based diplomat was driven to suicide because uh, while circulating fake news. And during election, we also witnessed a significant upgrading of the PRC sharp power drive. For instance, many celebrities who endorse the DPP candidates were mercilessly attacked by an army of internet trolls and whose internet protocol address are mostly not based in Taiwan. And a live event by Han Guoyu uh, on the Facebook was viewed by more than 6 million viewers. So you see the, the, the number is really quite surprising. So here is a question, to what extent does Beijing play a role in this relation? Since KMD won by a large margin in terms of popular vote, it suppressed KMD ADB by 1.3 million. China shopper is China's sharp power is definitely not the most decisive factor here that tip the balance. But however, we cannot underestimate the accumulated effects a result of the fake news warfare over the past two years. We have done a significant damage to the, to the credibility of the DPP government. Um, this is where I think Taiwan differs from the cases of Brexit or the 2016 U.S. election, because it, the, the, such kind of sharp power operating does not emerge only during the election. It was built there. So in a sense, you can say that sharp power had been a, a permanent feature in Taiwan's politics. And, and my last point is about a uh, 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 social movement again. Um, uh, because I'm, I'm here in Hawaii Yenjin because of my, uh, I'm going to study the, the effect of 2014 Sun movement. Um, I think one of the remarkable features of that movement took in, taking place uh, four years ago is that although it is very radical in the sense that it disrupt and occupy the national legislature, it is not a rejection of representative democracy per se. And young people actually demanding more from the democracy rather than they, they have actually in more immense faith on the democratic institutions. And that's why after the election, they, they joined the, after the occupation, they joined the election in droves. And the new power, new power party, which is currently the third largest party in the national, in the national legislature, is clearly a product of the Sun Flower Movement. 
And in this election, there are many uh, ex-Sunflower activists who joined the election. Some of them joined the DPP, some of them joined the New Power Party and other movement-oriented parties, I would say, like including Taiwan Green Party, so the Democratic Party, and the Radical Party. And the result, as I see it, is quite decent. Uh, the, um, the New Power Party has six seats in local council, and Taiwan Green Party got three, and the uh, Social Democratic Party got one. And by my account, at least four newly elected DPP local councillors uh, belong to this, this same, the same family. So in Taiwan, we have around a thousand uh, local uh, councillor positions spread across 22 jurisdictions. So we were looking at like 20 plus uh, new faces that were elected this year. Um, it might be numerically they were just a minority. However, if we look at the sheer number only, we, I think we might easily miss the significance of the emergence of the young cohort politicians. And they say some uh, commonalities that they are young and mostly in the late 20s or early 30s and they were highly educated, they were sophisticated with the social media, articulate and eloquent in their demands. And they also enjoy the media attention. And in ideological spectrum, these people are more liberal, LGBT friendly, some of them are openly gay, and that was unprecedented before, and also vocally more uh, pro-independence. And those who won in the, under, in the DPV ticket actually fought a very challenging primary early, earlier this year by defeating the second generation of the DPP politicians. So in, you see it's very <coughs> difficult for them to win the, uh, to become a candidate. So in a sense, we are witnessing an emergency of a new cohort of politicians who share similar social movement background. And since they are very young, they have 20 or 30 years ahead of them in politics. So it's very interesting to, uh, to observe their future careers. Um, so perhaps we might go into see a future president or premier out of this cohort. So I end my observation here. Thank you. Um, so thanks to Steve for, for organizing this. Um, so I briefly respond to three of the main themes Steve mentioned. Uh, the, the election's impact on the party system, um, Taiwan's relationship with mainland China, and with um, United States. Uh, on the party system, I think um, unlike what many people in the DPP probably mentioned would be one of those who are sympathetic to the view that after 2016, the DPP won so much that the Taiwanese party system is on a changing course. Uh, the KMT is losing for the first time ever its legislative majority uh, in the legislative election and losing the presidency at the same time. Uh, with the power of the Sunflower social movement and the rise of Taiwanese consciousness, identity, maybe the pro-unification, the KMT camp who is on the de permanent decline, and there will be a rise of the pro-independence camp. The competition in the party system will change from a blue versus green to a big green versus small green. So the new power party versus DPP party. And there was widespread optimism. I talked to many friends who were active in Sunflower Movement back then that there will be a new competition along socioeconomic cleavages, um, gay rights, social policy issues in Taiwanese party system instead of the old blue versus green um, competition. 
what this election and the past two years have told us is that nothing changed really in terms of fundamental cleavage politics in, in Taiwan. The fundamental cleavage politics in Taiwan remains an issue of identity cleavage, uh, the unification versus independence. The KMT remained uh, remarkably strong. Uh, ever after their crushing defeat in 2016, the DPP did some, them actually did some, them some favor by uh, helping them to froze all the assets they had, clean their image, doing the transitional justice, uh, ripping the KMT, forcing the KMT essentially to compete on a programmatic platform instead of the old client, uh, clientelistic platform. And the KMT managed through and won a landslide victory. It is true that KMT really won on the deficiency of the DPP uh, much like the DPP won in 2016, I would argue, not really on overwhelming approval of DPP's policy platform, but the overwhelming rejection of the KMT's eight years of governance in Taiwan. But the KMT managed to win, and the reason is not the KMT demobilized the independence issue versus unification. If you look at Han Goyu, who won a remarkable victory in Kaohsiung, he actually advocated, openly advocated for the 92 consensus in the mayor debates, and um, basically banked his campaign on a closer tie between Kaohsiung and China in terms of economic cooperation, attracting tourists to um, to Taiwan and Kaohsiung in particular, where DPP used to uh, be more lukewarm towards um, mainland um, business opportunities, of course, out of concerns of political identity. Um, so this is not a sign that Taiwanese are moving or swinging um, between pro-unification or pro-independence. I think most of the Taiwanese electorate are nonchalant or moderate on those positions. And the key determinant of those cleavage politics is the presence of Beijing. As long as Beijing remains communist, as long as Beijing does not um, give up a sovereignty claim over Taiwan. The cleavage, uh, the fundamental cleavage politics in Taiwan will remain a identity cleavage over Taiwanese versus Chinese. And that will not change no matter how social movement change, no matter how people's evaluation of electoral parties change. Um, and that's why the blue-green um, competition will remain um, for the time being. Um, it's also here that I beg to disagree with Minshu a little bit, um, the new parties. I think Taiwan remains perfectly a 2.1 political party system. The two being the KMT and DPP, and the 0.1 um, belongs to the new parties. Back to new parties in the 1990s, people first party 2000s, Taiwan Unity Union, early 2000s, um, now have new power par party, Green Party, Social Democrat Party. Parties come and go, but the only two parties that remain all the time are DPP and KMT due to the fundamental cleavage politics. Different social movements, frustration with governance, different new emergence of policy inclinations would create openings for new parties. But given Taiwan's electoral system, which is a single member district plus proportional representation that heavily skewed toward the two-party system, it's virtually impossible for third parties to emerge out of those two-party system. If you look at the new power party, despite winning so many seats, six out of 1,000 um, seats in local council elections I think they're probably essentially doomed for the 2020 legislative election. The three local districts of seats they won are all marginal districts. And with the KMT winning so big, they probably will be losing all three of them in 2020. And they may get something in proportional representation, but there'll be no more than three or four seats. So in 113 legislative uh, legislature, four seats does not do you any, any benefit. And there is probably no hope for other smaller parties in terms of that. So my suggestion for younger Taiwanese who are eager to change Taiwanese politics is to join DPP or KMT and change the politics within, rather than banking on 
a new party, new cleavage. If you look at people like Zheng Wentan or Lin Jialong, those people who are active in the Wild Lily movements, they actually joined the establishment and tried to change the politics within and grew to become prominent politicians in um, this generation. But if you choose to reject the establishment politics, regardless of the no change in cleavage politics, and try to move outside of the mainstream politics, the electoral system would not be kind to you, as we, as Sun Chu Yu or other politicians have found in the past 20, decade, um, 20 years. <coughs> so that's on party system. Um, um, Tsai Ing-wen's defeat, I think um, Tsai Ing-wen's actually doing pretty well. He, she, she promised a lot of reform and delivered a lot of reforms, pension reforms, labor reforms, transitional justice. Uh, I guess the one the issue lies in DPP is that they won so much that they, they get tired of winning. The, back in 2016, the DPP was willing to cooperate with anyone who is not a KMT member, or even those old KMT members who dare to advocate against the KMT in a critical juncture election. They cooperated with Cohen Joe, who was non-partisan but pro-DPP, but they also cooperated with many KMT members in the 2016 legislative elections. They nominated two KMT members in the legislative election in 2016, and DPP members did not grumble so much about having to cooperate with a non-DPP member back in 2016. But after winning so big in 2016, I think there might be some illusion over there associated with the Tokyo uh, referendum, uh, Olympic of referendum, that the Taiwanese consciousness or identity is so dominant that it's not possible for us to lo lo lose on a pro-Taiwanese independence um, platform. What happened is they rejected Ko Wen-jeou in Taipei and they rejected to cooperate with virtually all people who were both critical of KMT and DPP at the same time and pushed them toward the KMT side. So KMT, of course, was not welcoming to them, but if you're in opposition, you have nothing to lose, much like DPP did uh, in Mindjo's time. You don't have to change your platform so much. You just wait for the other party to screw up in offices and you pick up those um, disappointed votes and come into office. I think that's what the, exactly the KMT did in the past uh, two or three years. So coming to think of 2020, I think the DPP probably are doomed in terms of legislative elections. They won 15 to 20 districts in the past election in marginal seats, winning by one to three percent margin. So this tiny shift in electoral rate would render them losing the majority in the legislature. But they stand a decent chance of competing in the presidential election. I think there is still um, some reasonable chance for Tsai Ing-wen to win re-election, re given how KMTs not really making any visible changes in terms in terms of platform and campaign organization. Um, um, the second issue. Um the Beijing versus Taipei relationship. Um, I agree that Beijing probably played a larger than expected role in organizing those online opinions, um, instilling fake news, uh, or trying to, in collaboration with Taiwanese media, to censor or create false um, discourse in Taiwanese community. Um, but that's been a long-run problem. That's not something new uh, in Taiwan. I mean, Beijing has been trying to infiltrate or, um, or influencing Taiwanese public opinion for the, for, for forever probably. Um, and you have time winning office. You have DPP controlling legislative majority. So this is probably the best time for the pro-independence campaign to do anything about Chinese interference. If all they can do is to cry fall of Chinese interference without, no, without any concrete actions to contact them, then probably when KMT comes into office, the things will only, only get worse. We see a lot of accusation from National Security Council in Taiwan from DPP about um, mainland China uh, 
attacking internet, organizing fake news, doing uh, trolling on internet. But there is no concrete countermeasure from the DPP or from the Taiwanese government side. I think that's the part they, they probably want to focus on or improve. Um, and nevertheless, even though the Chinese were influencing elections, you can't sway something like 15% marching or 9% marching. Those really come not only from Chinese influence, but also from people's dissatisfaction with uh, the DPP's government. And Beijing has learned a lesson. Unlike 2016, where Beijing unabashedly attacked any people who dared to support Taiwan, not even Taiwanese independence, but any advocate, advocacy of Taiwanese identity would be uh, brutally assaulted by, uh, by Chinese government or Chinese society. The Chinese were pretty uh, moderate this time. Uh, only a few weeks before the election, there was a Golden Horse Award ceremony in which many Chinese artists and, and actors participated, uh, in which a Taiwanese uh, um, documentary director pronounced that she wished that Taiwan would be recognized, internationally recognized as a country in the future. Um, the Chinese actors, of course, boycotted that, and the Chinese government tried to boycott that, but they were responding in a very controlled manner. They didn't lash out and outright release a ban for Chinese actors to travel to Taiwan in the future. Instead, they outright denied, the propaganda department actually denied that we were doing any kind of boycott campaigns. So that gave the DPP no room to operate on a pro-independence campaign campaign um, on, on that issue. Similarly, like Huang An, who was a prominent pro-China troll in Taiwan, his Weibo account actually got banned shortly before the election because communists figured that letting him speak in favor of China probably would not do any good for China in Taiwan. So we really learned a lesson of moderation, and, we sus and I suspect to see that China probably will be playing a more moderate role in the 2020 elections um, to, to be more measured in their responses when they realize that probably at least um, sh shutting their mouths up will be the most helpful way to help KMT. Um, they probably would do that. Um, finally, on the relationship between um, Taiwan and the United States, it's very, I was in, I was in, um, I was on my trip to Kaohsiung overhearing uh, Yoshiko and the former um, premier of Taiwan and DPP prominent figure giving a speech in Xinpei and helping of Su Chen-chan's campaign rally, saying that Taiwanese has to vote, you have to vote for DPP. If you don't vote for DPP, that's an outright signal to United States that you're rejecting United States because we've been working so well with the United States and with the United um, embarking on a war, trade war with China, if we're voting for a party who's more sympathetic to China, that will send a very bad signal to uh, United States. What happened in Shenbei City was that people clearly didn't listen to Yoshikun. Like mm -hmm. Su Chen-chan suffered a crushing defeat despite being uh, having run probably one of conventionally known as the best run campaign um, in this election cycle. He lost by more than 200,000 votes. Um, so again, I don't think this is necessarily a Taiwanese rejection of the United States or saying to Washington that, hey, we want to make amends with China. It's more of a domestic election rejection of um, the DPP's controversial governance and the public uh, relationship uh, image. But there are some concerning signs. For instance, um, James Moriarty, the chief liaison officer in Taipei uh, of the United States, gave, um, had an interview with, um, with TVBS and in which he advocated for some positions of the United States. And that video was soon censored by the video and uh, by the TV station uh, under suspicion that maybe China gave some pressure to the TV station. And the DPP government 
um, of course, condemned that, but did not make any concrete move to change the outcome. The fact that the China, Chinese influence could do to remove a, a U.S. diplomat speech in Taiwanese media is remarkable. And I think um, people should be concerned about how KMT will be approaching this issue uh, if they ever come into office or grab uh, greater power. But in general, as Chen Chen, the uh, KMT Legislative Caucus Chair, who visited D.C. Um, this week and last week, said that there is essentially no disagreement between KMT and DPP in terms of maintaining a strong tie between Taiwan and, uh, and, uh, and the United States. And given the ongoing trade war, Taiwan is really not on the top priority of either Beijing or Washington, D.C. Trump calls himself tariff man. He didn't call him Taiwan man. So I suspect that as long as KMT and DPP do not move far away uh, from existing policies, foreign policies, um, Taiwan would not be a prominent issue in Sino-American relationship for the near future. Thank you, Jeff. Well, um, let me take the first question and, and ask the panel, uh, was, was this election a KMT victory or a DPP defeat? Uh, that is, what, what did the KMT offer uh, the voting public in Taiwan other than not being the DPP? Uh, other than being an alternative? Uh, that's, that's one question. Uh, and, and that has a lot to do with the potential in the 2020 uh, pre presidential and legislative elections. Because if the KMT is simply a protest vote, uh, then uh, one would have to ask how it's going to fare when the stakes are higher. The, the second thing that I, I would say is that I think the speakers have, in terms of the influence of the mainland, have emphasized too much sharp power, uh, have emphasized too much uh, the issue, of course, that preoccupies us here, which is actual interference in the electoral process. I think the, the mainland, uh, by its very existence, uh, by the opportunities that it offers uh, to many of the, the same disgruntled young people of Taiwan. Uh, I, I think that the mainland, uh, in, in that sense, uh, as, a, um, as a possible attraction for employment uh, that uh, you wouldn't want to alienate, because um, I, I, I think that the there is an ambivalence in the Taiwan electorate, uh, which is irreconcilable. Uh, that is uh, the the protection uh, and the commitment to a, a political view of Taiwan identity, while at the same time there's an attraction to uh, the possibility of economic opportunities on the mainland. Uh, and, and I think one of Tsai Ing-wen's pr problems uh, is that uh, she's, her political stance is perhaps more acceptable to the Taiwan electorate, but 
the consequences of that political stance in terms of cross-strait relations uh, are not uh, as acceptable. So you have an electorate that would like a policy to be pursued towards the mainland that would both affirm Taiwan identity and open opportunities uh, for future employment on the mainland. And as far as the mainland's concerned, you can't have it both ways. Um, so I, I, I would think about that. That is, is the very existence of the mainland uh, something that uh, affected the vote? So maybe the panel would want to think about that. And then we'll have questions. We have plenty of time. Anybody want to talk about a KMT victory? What the KMT offered that uh, was so attractive? <laughs> the alternative? So why did the KMT do so well? Can I, can I sort of cut in and answer that? I, I don't think it's a KMT victory. I think it's, def, it's very, very clear a DPP defeat, as I sort of mentioned in my presentation. And if you really ask Taiwanese voters what has KMT offered in, you know, in this election, I would argue that Han Guoying, for whatever he stands for, he sort of offered hope to Kaohsiung uh, electorate. Whether he can deliver on those promises and the hope, that will be another question that remains to be seen. But for other, you know, KMD candidates, I don't see them particularly offer anything. Yes. Yeah, I agree. I think, um, so the KMT was caught in surprise. Lu Xiuyan in Taichung after election said she, her internal poll showed her, uh, her winning by five points. He ended up, she ended up winning by 15 points. Uh, so that was, even for the internal poll, that's pretty remarkable. So I think the KMT did offer no alternative by virtue of being not DPP. Um, but KMT realized that. If you look at those, the past few weeks analysis, KMT realized they didn't win by offering any platform. They, uh, they won by being opposition. The DPP didn't realize that after 2016. They thought they had a mandate of doing a lot of reforms, <laughs> and that clearly backlashed, backfired in the past few years. So as long as the KMT realized they don't have any alternative, uh, they didn't offer uh, be any alternative to stay humble for the next 13 months. They stand a good chance of uh, grabbing more political power. If they overreact, much like Ma Yinju advocated in the past few days, to go rogue um, something related to Beijing, maybe there will be backlashes again. Yes? Hi, thank you all for offering such insightful uh, talk. And uh, my comment is that I'm just wondering, like, what is the impact of uh, the emergence of um, Han Guoyu as a new political star for KMT on the KMT's overall victory? That his impact is not only on the victory of, of Kaohsiung, but also like, on the other um, parts of Taiwan. That's certainly what, what the press is saying. Um, we don't have exit polls in ta Taiwan. No. That's illegal, actually. It, it's, it's illegal. Uh, so, so we don't really know. Well, um, I, I, I can't help to, to, to make a remark about the phenomenon of Han Guoyu. It might sound a little bit uh, unfair to him, but... Uh, <laughs> Taiwanese voters are very good at bearing superstars. Yeah, and just 
two years ago, Tsai Ing-wen was a star, and uh, 10 years ago, Ma ying was a star, and uh, 15, 20 years ago, Chen Shui-bian was an unprecedented superstar. And uh, look at how Taiwanese voters look at them. But it, it's, it's, it has a lot to do with the, 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 the media, political culture, and the voters' behavior. But uh, I think to some extent, Han Guoyu's phenomenon, I'm not saying this because uh, he had a surprise wound, but uh, I mean, the media treated him as a star, and he is in this campaign. But what, how, how long he can remain, you know, maintain that star status is something that uh, is really, you know, remains to be seen. So uh, I think Han Guoyu phenomenon needs to be analyzed in more detailed way and worth an analysis. But I also don't think um, the current sort of like a narrative on him, you know, <coughs> should be overblown. Yeah. Yeah. Voting. Uh, you mentioned in your talk that uh, people in their in their voting, it's not about what they like about the policy, it's what they don't like about the other policy. Now, in the context of democracy, what I guess I appreciate in democracy, I don't study political science, so please correct me if I'm wrong. You know, we've got a whole the, the advantage of, of democracy I see is that everybody gets their say, and when the majority have all expressed their opinions and everybody have really decided on the best option, there's actually procedural justice to enforce what the outcome is. But in a way, that's actually a negative voting option. It doesn't necessarily, in my view, support the legitimacy of the other option that people have voted for. It's almost like a And that, to me, is framing the context with which that the DPP has to govern with. So they have these referendum results. Do they go with it? Well, there's actually 477 million people for one versus 500. So yes, you have a majority, but it's actually really hard to call that a true majority because the procedural justice underlying this whole mechanism, I'm not sure it really supports the spirit of democracy. So for me, what I'm concerned about is Does negative voting undermine the legitimacy? And, and the implication of that is, I see that as actually playing out not just in Taiwan, but it's also happening in the U.S. to some extent. Um, so I think there's two, for negative voting, that's more um, election of political offices. For referendum, they actually have very clearly stated questions, and people are voting yes or no on those questions. For instance, the, the, the definition of marriage is between one man and one woman actually got 7.5 million votes in Taiwan. That's more than Taiwan got three years ago. So that's probably one of the highest uh, approval rating in terms of referendum any public votes. So in that case, the Taiwan did send a very strong conservative message they don't want same-sex marriage uh, as the pro-LGTB group advocated for. Uh, for the negative part, um, election offices, I agree. Um, that's why politicians should never interpret too much of mandate from any electoral victory, and they often tend to do that from time to time. Um, many times, electors simply decide on the worst policy, not on the best policy in negative voting. And, and when they experiment with another policy, they realize that's maybe worse than the worst 
enforce the policy we decided three years ago, and we don't want none of them. Since they don't have to govern, they can keep rejecting policies, and that would partially lead into the rise of populism, outsiders worldwide. Um, Fortunately, or unfortunately for Taiwan, the cleavage politics is so entrenched, so I don't see a way for a third party to rise beyond the traditional blue-green cleavage, so they're probably stuck there for the time being, uh, which kind of reduces the risk of having outsider to ruin everything, but also reduces um, the benefit of having outsider come in to provide out-of-box solutions to, to clear the old traditional politics. You know, on the subject of referenda, uh, it, they are controversial in terms of the relationship between referenda and democratic government. Uh, because uh, referenda expresses a will of the people, and it seems like direct democracy. Uh, but I think as the argument was made during the Chen Shui-bian administration and the early part of the rise of the DPP, uh, what society's need is not referenda that guide politicians, but politicians who lead society uh, in a direction. Now, that's a very fine balance, but uh, both of those are important for any democratic society. Uh, because I think as we've learned in uh, our experience in this country, uh, democracy depends on a democratically committed elite. Uh, and vote by referenda can be seen as undermining democracy or running away or as a political leader running away from a decision. I, wasn't, I didn't do it. The, the people did it. So it's it's a, it's a it's a dicey thing. If if the DPP had followed through on the same-sex marriage as the Constitutional Court uh, insisted, would it have been accepted by the people of Taiwan? Probably. But if you ask them, that's what they're going to answer. Uh, I, I want to add a point about that, because if we see the changing attitude of Taiwanese when we compare the referendum results on same-sex marriage to the previous surveys, I mean, about a year ago, two years ago, you see the difference from 50-50 to like 70 to 30. Um, Jinkai mentioned that uh, um, DPP in 2016 uh, thought they have the reform mandate, so they started to do reforms. I think they did. They did have the reform mandate because the voters granted them that. One of the problems that DPP, DPP got defeated so much this time, I think part of the reason was because they didn't handle reforms well. For all those important issues, party assets, transitional justice, and the same-sex marriage, and all other things, I think I echo um, Professor Goldstein's uh, remarks that if DPP has insisted on pushing through the reforms, they might not be caught in such an awkward dilemma that they have pleased nobody. They pleased no reformers, and then they pleased those conservative forces, and then they pleased no uh, conservative forces. And uh, if you 
look at uh, the, what happened in the past two years um, about all these reform agendas and uh, the way DPP handled it. And also, if you look at uh, how DPP behaved toward the referendums this time, it, it is almost astonishing that some of the reforms directly challenge the TPP's DPP's policies over the past two years and then campaign promise in 2016. However, oh, you know, throughout this campaign uh, of the, the, the past election, with these referendums, DPP didn't show, almost didn't show any position. You know, it's like almost unimaginable. You are the ruling party. People are proposing reforms to directly challenge your policies. And you are behaving exactly like Professor Goldstein said. You are like, okay, we now want to listen to people's opinion on that, which in, in a way I think shows the lack of democratic you know, leadership. You know, democracy, democratic leadership actually can, could be a very paradoxical thing, right? On the one hand, you want to listen to the people, but on the other hand, you really need to lead people. So let me add one more example. When Obama was supporting same-sex marriage, uh, his biggest constituency in this country, African-American voters, at the beginning didn't really support uh, that same-sex marriage that much, according to the opinion survey. But with Obama supporting same-sex marriage, survey actually shows the increase, the gradual increase of African-American voters on this topic. So you, you do see the you know, very interesting interactive dynamics between Democratic leaderships and uh, their supporters. And uh, I kind of feel that DPP leaders probably should think more about uh, how do they interact with their supporters. Uh, can I? Sure. Uh, um, after the election, there have been mutual recriminations between like movement activists and the DPP. Like, for example, the BP, some of the DPP politicians think that uh, we should stay away from these uh, LGBT issues. That's really a negative asset for DPP. And whereas people on the activist side think that the DPP really stupid, we should. So they are uh, criticism on the both camps. But I think in this case, actually, the DPP make a fatal mistake by not uh, making known his stand. So the referendum become an arena where the KMT can make its comeback, where the DPP just pretend that there was no referendum at all. And, and that was uh, something really bad. Um, I, I, I think that probably I, I, over the past two years, I have been thinking, I think this is probably Tsai Ing-wen's personality issues, but he was trained as a negotiator. He is <coughs> not really into the, the, the executive position where uh, he was required to make a, de a decision. So for many issues that he had been trying to dodge for the past few years, like gay marriage is one clear example, and somehow he didn't f succeed by dodging those challenges, and uh, this challenge actually end up in part a, a punished vote against her party. So sometimes I think really sometimes you need, uh, like uh, Steve said, that politicians were there to require to make bold leadership when the time needed. But you cannot just leave everything to the decision of electoral rate. Uh, yeah. Any <clears throat> questions from Jeff? The, uh, all this talk about referenda, uh, lowering of the threshold questions, but there was one referendum question that was missing. 
question to the panel is what prevents that referendum question from appearing? The law. The law. The law. The law. Yeah. Yeah. So the Tokyo Olympic name, the name for to, to be used is sort of like working around that. Yeah. Yeah. Now that's the exception. Anything that has to do with Taiwan's sovereignty or name. Yeah. I feel like during the election, people talk a lot about generation gap. Especially like young people, we are immersed in our Facebook groups. Lots of like echo chapters, people have the similar ideas. But actually, the results are now we have expected. Do you think it's a predictor for the results for a referenda? And if yes, um, what's your forecast for like a longer term? Like for 10 years, will the opinions among Taiwanese change? Uh, for same-sex marriage, that's definitely a generational issue, and it's not just Taiwan. If you look at the survey uh, all over the world, uh, people's attitude shift toward the same-sex issue has been a global phenomenon. And Taiwan's, uh, I think Taiwan's change should be just regarded as part of the trend. Yeah, so same-sex marriage, I think, is uh, definitely a generational thing. About the identity thing, it becomes a little bit more complicated. I think I agree with both Ming Zhou and uh, um, Professor Goldstein, um, you know, in a certain aspect, uh, there is the China's shock power thing. But then we probably should not rely on China's, you know, the, should not sort of like explain a lot of things by using that. Yeah, because, uh, yeah, you know, Ming Xiu pointed out that uh, Han Guoyu's uh, um, uh, uh, a film has like uh, six point, more than six million viewers. But you, if you think of the number of voters who supported Ma Ying-jeou or Tsai Ing-wen, I mean, the blue camp voters could be that. So imagine that all blue camp voters, you know, each of them watch it one time, then that's about six million. So it couldn't, I mean, since he has created so much fuss during the campaign. So for the generational difference, I think it, uh, with China's rising power in both economic and uh, military and everything, um, the generational change will be something that we really need to pay close attention and cannot naturally assume that will be like a very clear direction. Yeah. Yeah, I think this that the election challenges our thinking of whether younger generation are necessarily more pro-independence. After 2016, there is talk of the the generation of independence by nature, pro-independence by nature generations of people growing up in democracy are by nature more antithetical to China, to authoritarianism. Um, and if you look at the, how younger generations vote, particularly in the Taipei city mayor election, they overwhelmingly support Covenger, who advocated for moderate relationship with uh, China. China. And Yao Wenzhu, who ran DPP candidate, who ran unabashedly in a radical campaign against China, end up getting only 17%, 18% of vote with almost a no youth vote. And that's a sharp departure from 2016, where the youth vote overwhelmingly going to the DPP camp. This time they fled away from DPP camp, despite DPP carrying the badge of pro independence Taiwanese identity. I think that brings them out the issue of how we interpret 2016 elections and how younger generations of Taiwanese, when they grow up, face all the economic 
economic concerns, when they actually interact with China, how do they balance, as Steve put it, how do they balance between the protection of Taiwanese identity and the protection of their own economic interests? Although the latter might still be a false discourse created by Beijing and KMT anyway. But don't forget that Kuanzhou this year only won by 3,000 votes. Yeah. There, there was not an overwhelming youth rush to... Uh, There's an overwhelming youth rush for Kuanzhou, but also overwhelming a backlash against him from the older voters. So he got pension <laughs> benefits for virtually all old people in Taipei. Well, again, we don't. Just have quickly here, uh, I think in 2014 and 2016, you you saw the organized campaign by busing young people uh, go back to their native home to catch the vote, but you don't see that campaign this year. So my guess is that age is probably not a prominent feature no, this is. time. There is. Oh. I mean, in Taipei, in smaller the, scale, right? In Taipei, for the sunflower movement, there is an advocate who openly criticized Kovinger during the campaign. Got lost his election. <laughs> besides polling well in in pre polls, and there is a YouTuber who ran out of nowhere supporting Kovinger got elected out of nowhere, and that's a clear contrast of how much youth really voted their way along. So age is like over over overruled by Kovinger's phenomenon, right? Sort of. <laughs> Was there? there yes, there and there. First, you please. Um, I think the election sends a very nice message as to what people think about this. What could it? Uh, what could it is to? For example, for you would probably vote for the DPP. Uh, I'm, I mean, we don't know. Uh, we we don't know what the Guomindang position would would be on you know those issues. We, we know tra transitional justice, obviously, uh, but I think that's the point that I, I think I was trying to make is is that it's hard for me at least to conceive of not only to visualize a Guomindang leader, uh, but to also conceive of a coherent platform uh, that the party, which is badly divided, uh, could be able to come up with. Um, and, and, and that gets me to a, a point that was made here. I, I wonder, is identity still the major cleavage between the KMT and, and the DPP? Uh, I, I'm not so sure about that. Uh, you know, Maying Joe's great change in the three no's this year, uh, you know, not, no war, no independence, and not to necessarily reject mm -hmm. unification. Um, is, is that going to make the DPP, the, the KMT's position on identity that much different? Uh, he he was stung by the identity issue. Uh, that's why he lost, or is one of the major reasons. Anyway, yeah. A little bit louder, please. to the political process. The thing is, uh, what you brought up is the referendum. Oh. Have a referendum on the Dutch. 
you're the expert, so help us strategize. If you're able to change the law, right now your president is body control, but you lost a lot of votes. Well, I think that's an example where political leaders have to lead. Uh, independence or a vote of independence on a referenda would probably mean conflict, uh, armed conflict with, with the mainland. And uh, that's a case where political leaders have to restrain public opinion, in, in, in my opinion anyway. Well, I, I think the simplest way to explain this is Taiwan has been a protege state of the United States for the past several decades. Uh, unless the United States assure Taiwan that uh, there is no security concern and that you can go ahead to have a real 100% referendum law, I don't think Taiwanese can do that out of the concern of security. It's a real concern. Otherwise, uh, there is no way to explain how come, you know, uh, after Taiwan democratized, after Taiwan democratized for 30 years, there are a lot of things that we cannot change. We cannot have a 100% referendum law, um, that uh, uh, referendum law from the very beginning <coughs> in the year, in early 2000s, when the law was enacted, has usually uh, exclude the issues about uh, the name, um, the sovereignty issues, flag about Taiwan. I mean, all these things related to Taiwanese identity and the sovereignties are excluded. So the geopolitical reason, I think, is very, very clear. Another thing is, uh, if you look at Taiwan's uh, constitution, a lot of the third wave of democracies, when they democratize, they have a new constitution. We don't. We are not only we are still using Republic of China as the, our national name, we are still sort of using, we are still using Repu Republic of China constitution, which was enacted in 1946 in China and brought to Taiwan by KMT. So, I mean, most of the, the, the newly democratized countries either, you know, complete, have an over complete, uh, complete overhaul of their constitution or they just enact and have a new constitution, but we can't do that. So all these things are basically um, the, the, the structural constraint that Taiwan um, has to face until the day that uh, uh, Taiwan and China become really reconciled. And uh, at that time, Taiwan, within Taiwan, um, Taiwanese have to reconcile between the identity of Republic of China and the Taiwan. That's a, sort of like a side issue, uh, not familiar by a lot of people outside of Taiwan, but it is a real issue in Taiwan. <laughs> I mean, the question, the answer ultimately lies in Taiwanese people. There is a constitutional pathway to achieve independence. You can amend the constitution as long as three quarters of legislative vote for such amendment and half of the electorate vote in favor of that. There is no, uh, you can do that legitimately. But the fact that it's impossible for half of the electorate of Taiwan to vote for independence amid Beijing's security threat and no three quarters of legislature will be willing to do that. The, key, the DPP almost control near three quarters of votes in legislatures. There's virtually no discussion, even among the most radical pro-independence group of doing such referendum. You know, one thing to think about independence, uh, 
Taiwan now has extensive international representation, uh, quasi-ambassadorial, um, you know, techo offices throughout the world. A consequence of independence would be that all of those states that recognize the People's Republic of China would have to make a choice between recognizing the newly born uh, Taiwan Republic or the People's Republic of China. And it, it, it's predictable uh, what the choice will be. In other words, independence would mean further international isolation for Taiwan. Uh, there might be satisfaction on the island that people would have realized uh, Taiwan statehood. But internationally, even absent the security element, uh, it would be devastating for Taiwan's representation in the world. Taiwan's a major uh, uh, international economic force. It's a dynamo for its size. What if it lost all its representation? That would be a consequence of independence. Something to think about. Anyway, uh, sir, I'm sorry. So my related question is, it looks like as time goes on, the balance of power between mainland Taiwan even more. So it's obvious that the area that Taiwan probably solve it. So my question is, how do the people, general public, young people feel it? Oh. And related to that, maybe it's the TV debate, right? They focus on the art. They thought that they can maintain their faith to get the world uh, vote. But it looks like it's not the case. The Han Guoyu won because he focused on economy, right? So the focus would be Taiwan's economy. And the economy needs to have good The question is how to handle that. Um, there has been a persistent argument for Taiwan to have political negotiation with mainland China is that the time is not on Taiwan's side. That with China's growth in economic and military power, that it would be the, in the best interest of Taiwan to agree with Beijing on certain political formula. That could be one country system or something else, because time is not on Taiwan's side. This kind of argument has been there like for one decade or two decades. But one of the, I think one of the Taiwanese people's fear is that we do have a reference society that is just close by and we look at every, on an everyday basis, that is Hong Kong. You know, look at uh, the Sino, uh, Sino negotiation on Hong Kong in 82, and they have a basic law in 90, and what has become of Hong Kong lately. So I think most of the Taiwanese people will have the kind of understanding that any promise is not going to last. If we went there to go for negotiating and settling on something, that is not something set in the stone. It's not going to be changed. So I think that's one of the reasons why that people in Taiwan are really skeptical of a political negotiation with China.
I think the choice between economy and national identity is to some extent a false dichotomy. I mean, KMT is always making the argument in order to grow economy, you have to have a good political relationship with Beijing. Well, Ma Ying-jeou did that for his 80 years of governance, and Taiwanese people were clearly not satisfied with either economic growth during those eight years, nor the Taiwanese identity during those eight years. If you look at Chen Shui-bian's governance, the dependence of Taiwan on Chinese economy actually increased under his rule, despite all his political rhetoric against China. So the economic ties between China and Taiwan probably destined to strengthen uh, more or less for the time being. We'll see what happens to the trade war. Um, the Taiwan's economic uh, figure are not bad. I mean, GDP growth are decent, minimum wage is been rising, where people will be complaining about youth only earning 22,000. Now the average wage is probably 30,000 or even minimum wage is rising above 22,000. So in terms of economic figures, Taiwan's doing pretty well. Um, the problem I think she fell into was similar to mind you, that they, they rely too much on economic statistics and portraying themselves as successful governance, where the people feel very differently in terms of daily grievances. There's something to solid economic growth and how much people feel about economic growth, whether they're able to share economic growth, and in the political campaign, whether you can frame your economic growth to be something relatable to the, re to the public. I think the DPP and the KMT, to some extent, in their 80 years of governance, fail to deliver or re realize the importance of doing that. Much like you see Obama recovering economy while Republicans are winning, or Trump boasting his economic figure is also losing in midterm elections, economic growth in itself does not necessarily guarantee a victory, even if economic um, rhetoric becomes the dominant issue in the campaigns. <clears throat> Maybe that's a good note to end on. Uh, one, yes, one last. <laughs> Um, I think I say something about that. He kind of had a pessimistic view of new power party as a representative third party in the national landscape. I, I kind of uh, agree with him on that account because the electoral system is working against the emergence of a third party on a national scale. But having said that, but you look at the local election because the lo most of the local council election is still proceed under multiple member system, meaning that you can elect m more than one uh, politician in one district, and that is uh, more favorable for small party contenders. And you will look at current local politics, actually uh, quite a significant number of local uh, councilors are actually non-partisan, uh, around one third. Um, so I think one of the way that this movement-oriented party, uh, the niche for them will be the local politic uh, politics. It's probably pretty much like the same in Japan. Although we know we have in Japan we have the Liberal Democratic Party dominance on the national landscape, but you look at the local party in the prefectural level, there are many, many like interesting parties that with movement uh, environmental agendas and they were successfully have their candidate elected over there. So I think uh, with the, the Obaba, Oba, Obasan, actually Obasan is not grandma, grandma. So I think they are pretty much more like middle-aged. Uh, they, they still haven't reached that, that, that old. But I, I think there is still room for this kind of innovative uh, political organization to participate in the arenas. So, can I ask a very quick note about that? Taiwan's uh, not just party system, the electoral system is, uh, especially at the national election level, is uh, 
you know, against the, the emergence of small parties. There are uh, regulations in the laws that are not uh, favorable to small parties. So from political scientists' viewpoint, uh, there are a lot of uh, reforms that need to be done, you know, uh, include like uh, the money that involved in, in, in campaign. For, for example, one of the, the issues regarding the same-sex marriage uh, referendum is because the, the conservative force has all these resources. Yeah, money and uh, doing a lot of advertisement and uh, compared to the LGBT camp, you know, that's usually lack of resources, even though a lot of young supporters are using internet to support them. So uh, there are a lot of regulations that are regarding uh, campaign finance, regarding the threshold of distribution of seats in the parliament and regarding how, you know, the requirement of a party that, uh, a political party that has to meet the things need further reforms and further works to make the, the possibility for small parties to emerge. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Uh, we'll uh, be convening again in February of 2020. Uh, and uh, we'll see how well we did today. Thank you very much. Thank you to the panelists, and thank you to the audience.